Welcome to Dispatch Live. It's a big one today because, well, we don't really have any clue what's going to happen with the House speakership race. So we're going to spend most of our time talking about that today. But Happy New Year. There's some other things to, to discuss as well. What Jonah's favorite side dish was, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but first up, that's we've got not a Aud- euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've got Audrey Fallberg and Harvest Prude here who are fresh off the hill, right guys? Yes. Yep. So I was in the chamber today and Harvest was uh, running around asking people questions in between votes. Um, yes. I think we both left just about an hour ago, if even that. So. so Audrey, why don't you start us off, explain, explain big picture what happened today for those who had anything better to do than to watch nothing happen. Sure. We did the hard work so you didn't have to. Um, today, today was supposed to be a really triumph, triumphant moment for House Republicans, right? I mean, they won the majority. Everybody was predicting a red wave. It was a slimmer majority than House Republican leaders had promised their party, frankly. Um, but, you know, they have all these newly elected members in the chamber. Um, and then, you know, it starts off with the vote counting. McCarthy had gone into this vote knowing that there would be at least five defectors who were very public about um, opposing McCarthy. I think all of them are from the Freedom Caucus. Um, But then, you know, once they started tallying votes, it was kind of stunning. It was actually 19 House Republicans who ended voting, ended up voting for candidates other than McCarthy. A kind of random selection of people, too. Somebody cast their vote for Jim Banks. Uh, A lot of people for Jim Jordan, who supports McCarthy, um, Andy Biggs, he had declared his candidacy ahead of the vote. Um, but then, you know, another round where everybody ended up rallying around Jim Jordan. And then um, in the third round of counting, it went up to 20 no votes for McCarthy. Um, so that left him with just 202 uh, votes in support. Um, Hakeem, every single House Democrat actually voted for Hakeem Jeffries, which is a kind of stunning degree of party unity that they really wanted to project today to contrast with ha- the House GOP's chaos. Um, but yeah, it's pretty uncertain. Uh, they adjourned at around just before 530. And uh, we spoke with a lot of members today and almost none of them seem to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, so Harvest, these folks are coming back at noon tomorrow. We'll have ballot number four. I mean, first of all, we haven't gone past ballot one since 1923. Um, perhaps the most fun precedent for this is the 133 ballots it took over several months pre-Civil War. But is this about Kevin McCarthy? Is it about a specific policy? Uh, When you're talking to these members in the hallway, what are the never Kevin's saying? Yeah, it's it's basically a personality problem or a yeah, a person problem that they have with Kevin McCarthy. I would ask them like, okay, what is the policy or the concession that he could give you that um, would sort of change your mind? And and the way they talked about it was. It was more about, you know, draining the swamp and changing how things work around here and that it wasn't just one concession or one policy that he could change to win their support. Um, I caught Chip Roy as he was leaving the vote and kind of like there was this huge huddle um, walking with him from the stairs all the way across the street and to uh, the building. And there were a couple of times where one reporter was was walking backwards and he was like, listen, don't get hit by a car because of me. But um, anyway, so I asked him, like, you know, what? could change that would change your mind or like get your support. And he kind of just acknowledged that um, there's, there's no one thing that Kevin McCarthy could give him that would, would change his mind. So people, these house freedom caucus members, they have a trust issue with, with Kevin McCarthy, um, whether rightly or wrongly, it's not really my place to say. Um, And it doesn't seem like anything that Kevin supporters are saying or arguing on the floor or, between votes um, tonight, obviously, they're going to be talking with House Freedom Caucus members. It doesn't seem so far that they're budging them. Well, and Kevin McCarthy has been wheeling and dealing for months now. He believed that Republicans would take the majority. He obviously thought he should be speaker, um, as he said in one of the uh, in the caucus meeting before they headed in for the first vote. Um, I've earned this. (laughs) (laughs) So he's already made and offered all sorts of things, uh, including things that probably mean even if he becomes speaker or if anyone becomes speaker, uh, they won't be speaker for long when they've lowered the threshold to it only takes five members now to basically call up a vote um, on this, you know, sort of a no confidence vote, if you will, on the speakership. And so when you're 
now three plus months with those deals and phone calls and pressure campaigns happening, um, and you're still left with 20 no votes, uh, to me, you know, they'll tell you out loud that it's about trust. Um, as, as one of the never Kevin said, I guess not a never Kevin, a no vote, um, said, you know, how can you trust someone who wants the job this much? And so no matter what he promises, if it's trust, um, there's, you know, they don't trust the promise. And I think this is for some of the members and Jonah, I want to get you in on this. I mean, this is a symptom, right? This isn't the problem itself. What we're seeing right now. Part of what we're seeing is sort of the nihilism side of the house. But part of what we're seeing is sort of the resurgence almost of that Tea Party, Ted Cruz, shut down the government. Um, let's stand for principle, even if that principle means that the United States defaults on its debts type thing. Uh, can you break down sort of philosophically what has gotten us to this point? Sure. This is what um, I, I think it was. Um... Socrates called the great underpants gnome fallacy. And um, by which I mean, uh, going back to 2013, where uh, I remember talking to somebody who was in one major major Senate leadership meeting. And this is back when Ted Cruz and others were arguing with a straight face that um, 40 senators could uh, overrule 60 senators and repeal Obamacare. And yeah. um, doesn't <laughs> work like that, right? And anyway, this friend of mine was in the meet- in a major meeting and of like chiefs of staff and stuff and said, uh, so like, what's the end game here? Mm-hmm. And a very prominent person said in response to him, oh, you're one of those end game guys. <laughs> As if like, wanting an actual goal for a strategy was a sign that you were some sort of sellout. And I think about, I think about that all day today, watching all of this stuff, as you watch people move goalposts and change what the demands were and all the rest, it boils down to, you hear these people, and it, this is why I talk about the underpants gnome thing. It's like, step one, block Kevin McCarthy. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, total victory, right? No one has step two here. Except rally around. I heard a bunch of people today say everyone needs to unify around Jim Jordan. And like Jim Jordan even said he's not going to be speaker. Jim Jordan. I mean, I will. Jim Jordan voted for McCarthy. And the idea that there are like if if you can get 20 people to vote against McCarthy, how many people could you get to vote against Jim Jordan? I mean, like 120. Let's be clear. I think there's a really high chance that the next speaker of the House voted for Kevin McCarthy today. And it's not Kevin McCarthy. Um, I just no. don't think it's going to be Jim Jordan. No, I think it's going to be Scalise or somebody like that. But my only point is, like, I think the nihilism is the point here. There are no grand ideas at stake here. McCarthy is essentially a pro-Trump person. Marjorie Taylor Greene is clearly a pro-Trump person. Lauren Boebert is a pro-Trump person. There's there, It is pure sort of performative stuff, with the exception of a couple people like, like Chip Roy, as we were saying before we started recording, who actually believe it. But even Chip Roy has got the problem of, not actually having an like so many of the things I was in CNN for two hours today, listening to one interview after another. And the, the arguments always seem to be like, um, and because vests have no sleeves, Kevin McCarthy cannot be speaker. Like there was, there was all these non sequiturs between what they want and what they think Kevin McCarthy represents. Brendan Buck, who has worked in House Republican leadership before, and I've worked with Brendan before, he wrote this long piece in the New York Times that I thought was really fantastic in explaining um, what all's going on, what all can happen, how the votes all will work, what happens if some people leave, how Democrats could help. I mean, it was a really good step-by-step layout. But in the end, um, I thought his analysis was spot on where he said, Weakening Kevin McCarthy is the point that if he becomes speaker, he will be such a weak speaker. He won't last long and he won't have any sort of wind in his sails. That is what they want. And that's so interesting to me because it gets to, again, a Jonah Goldberg thesis about weak parties, 
back in the day, there's a reason we haven't had this in a hundred years. It's not because all of the other speakers are so special. It's because we had strong parties. They had carrots and sticks and they, you know, shove one down your throat or beat you in the head with the other. Um, and so when you have these weak parties, the incentives of the more junior members who aren't going to get committee chairmanships, who aren't getting post offices named after them anytime soon, their incentives are to be on cable news, raise money, get their name ID up, build their brand. And uh, the best way to do that is exactly what they're doing right now. But, and I think this was the most telling part of this is when the Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, uh, Kevin Perry crowd met with Kevin McCarthy, Audrey um, last night, uh, they said they'd be fine if they moved to a plurality vote and Hakeem Jeffries was the speaker. And they're exactly right. They are totally correct about their own incentives um, because they would be better off fighting against Hakeem Jeffries, how bad Democrats are. They can raise money off that. It's much harder um, when you've got to tout your own accomplishments and your own team. And so in that sense, Jonah, you're wrong. They do have a goal. Weaken Kevin McCarthy or even better, get Hakeem Jeffries as speaker because it's not like anything they actually passed would get signed into law or anything that these guys care about. I mean, I think that that's exactly right. Their chief goal here is to leverage as much power as possible. They're not interested in working with Democrats at all. They're not interested in passing any legislation. All they want to do is have investigations, which some of them seem to maybe be legitimate. But I mean, as you mentioned, this well, is one of the concessions that Kevin McCarthy made was the promise of a committee to investigate the uh, weaponization of DOJ. So we'll see how that goes. Right. Uh, but as you mentioned, their chief um, goal is to reinstate the motion to vacate the chair with just a single member being able to bring that to the floor. McCarthy, as you mentioned, he agreed to a five vote threshold that still has yet to be adopted because they haven't even adopted it. <laughs> um, but what I thought was really fascinating is some centrists um, seem to be kind of frustrated with that. Um, I was speaking with one um, House Republican, kind of independent minded uh, Republican who expressed concern and accused uh, McCarthy of negotiating with terrorists on that point, a.k.a. the Freedom Caucus. Um, centrists have really stood by McCarthy um, for months now. Why? Because he's fundraised for them. He's traveled to their districts. Um, he knows that he can't you couldn't get a majority and win the speakership without their support. So if you start seeing factions among centrists, that's when you get a problem. They seem to be steadfast in their support for McCarthy at this point. But if things keep going to multiple rounds of ballots for several days, things could change and everything is pretty unclear right now. Uh, Harvest, this question comes from Suzanne. I really want some clarification on the pros and cons of Kevin McCarthy. I want to hear points of view on who would be better and why Jim Jordan doesn't want the job as speaker. Nobody wants the job as speaker. <laughs> yeah, I will say, um, so Jim Jordan has said previously to today, and Audrey, correct me if I'm wrong here, if I missed something in, her, in his speech today, but he said previously that he doesn't want the job, that he wouldn't accept the job. Um, but he didn't say anything like that, I don't think, in his speech today, though he did like talk about Kevin McCarthy. Um, so I'm not totally convinced that he is like as reluctant as maybe he previously has been. Um, oof, pros and cons, that's like a bit of a harder question. I think the pros, it, it depends because it depends on which faction, like pros to whom, to, 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 for the centrist, like Audrey was saying, you know, Kevin McCarthy has fundraised for them. He has, um, stood by them. Um, he, you know, he's but like policy wise, is there, let's set aside Jim Jordan for a second. I don't see a lot of difference in how the next two years are going to go with Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise or Elise Stefanik. Well, I don't think that, uh, I'm, this is kind of an open secret in Washington that McCarthy isn't really an ideas or policy guy. He's more of a people person. He remembers facts about your family. He's um, really good relationally. And so that's how he's been able to build up the strong relationships with uh, centrists who are very, very firm in the support for him on the floor. It's worth noting that, um, you know, a lot of people on the floor, for example, Nicole Maliotakis, during, I think it was the second vote, she said, you know, Kevin McCarthy, for as long as it takes, Nancy May said, only Kevin. Greg Pence said, McCarthy, McCarthy, McCarthy. Um, these people don't seem to let up. Um, but, you know, uh, in terms of somebody like 
uh, Stefanik, for example. I mean, she's just kind of she her voting record is kind of frankly too bipartisan for the Freedom Caucus wing. Um, she's kind of done anything to to gain power over the years, but she's kind of too Trumpy for the moderates now. It seems and somebody like Steve Scalise was talking to a moderate today, and that moderate said that. Um, Steve Scalise might be a little bit too socially conserv- conservative for the centrists in the uh, caucus, although it seems like he, you know, really might be willing to accept that role if push comes to shove. But it was stunning. I was in the chamber. Um, McCarthy, he was just kind of fiddling around, trying to fake a smile the whole time. But it was stunning to see how um, stern Scalise and Stefanik were throughout the entire process. They were just like looking down, telling the votes, looked very upset the whole time. I mean, at least looked like she was keeping score at a baseball game, but yeah. like not not a fun one. No. <laughs> Can I ask a question for the whole group here? Like, um, I get, I think, Audrey, you're entirely right that there are moderates. The moderates are supporting McCarthy. That's true. But this idea that the 19, now 20 uh, rebels, uh, that they get to own the the phrase, the conservatives, the hard right, the the serious conservatives really, really bothers me because like Steve Scalise is as conservative on issues as Matt Gates or any of these guys. You know, Pete Sessions is a conservative. Like lots of these guys are just conservatives, um, but they are not necessarily, you know, like, you know, what is it that that is from from Batman? Some people just want to see the world burn, right? Like they're not, they're not nihilist. They're not sort of like, you know, even if, if even if we're going to agree with with Sarah's interpretation that it is in their interest to uh, be performative jackwads, um, they're not performative jackwads. They actually want like to actually do things, and that's why they see McCarthy as a better vessel for it. But so I just my only point is that I think the ideological explanations of this don't have anything to do with things like political philosophy and traditionally understood. They have to do with like whether you accept that basically the world of social media and performative stuff and tear it all down without caring about what comes next is the new normal. And the people who believe it's the new normal with a handful of exceptions are voting against McCarthy. Am I, am I wrong about that? Right. And when you say like, when we talk about centrists, you know, we're not always necessarily talking about um, people with way more moderate voting records, though that is sometimes the case as well. But it also sometimes is just the case that they come from districts that are less Trumpy, um, Mm. so to speak, or less dark red, I guess. Um, Though, honestly, after, you know, Lauren Boebert scraped by in her last election, like it's kind of how you know does she deserve the label of like being from a conservative district who knows um but but i think to that point um i was talking with brian mast after the uh day had adjourned and he was just saying that you know so far no one has the support that mccarthy has and he was like i think what the house freedom caucus crowd needs to realize is that kevin mccarthy is not mitch mcconnell and he's not you know I don't even know what that means in this context, though, because I think they would support Mitch McConnell. The House Freedom Caucus people or the centrists? Um, I think the House Freedom Caucus people would support Mitch McConnell because Mitch McConnell, like Nancy Pelosi, still has carrots and sticks that a Kevin McCarthy, frankly, just doesn't have. I think he was making the point that, you know, Mitch Mitch McConnell is kind of um, on the outs with Trump, um, whereas Kevin, after a lot of like uh, bowing and scraping, but this is gets not back to the except maybe issue, is. right? Yeah, like yeah. Um, okay. Uh, from J polling three, any word about Dems' willingness to do a sick out to make the numbers work? And just to explain this a little bit, so uh, the way you determine the majority is the number of members of the House, which would be four hundred and thirty-five normally. One person passed away, so it's four hundred and thirty-four. So half plus one is two eighteen, but. It doesn't count if you don't actually vote for someone. If you just vote present, 
the 434 number starts ticking down or if you don't show up at all. And so if enough Democrats decided they'd like to sleep in tomorrow or enjoy a um, you know boozy brunch over on the Hill and simply don't show up at noon for that fourth ballot and you get down to, um, you know, let's say 34 of them don't show up. Now you're at 400. Now you, Kevin McCarthy just needs 201 votes to become speaker. If all of those people who didn't show up were Democrats, he has that in theory for the fourth ballot. Um, so, Audrey, is there any indication that Democrats are interested in a Kevin McCarthy speakership? <laughs> it's possible that some of them could sleep in, as you mentioned, but it's very unlikely. Uh, House Democratic leaders have every incentive to make House the House GOP look as disunified and chaotic as possible. Um, I think it was Catherine Clark, one of the newly elected Democratic leaders who harvest. I think she just sent out an email um, earlier in the, the afternoon, basically reminding people to stay vigilant and coming for the votes. There's one point, maybe you saw this, Sarah, if you're watching on C-SPAN, where AOC, uh, I think it was the second or third vote, and she was out of the chamber, and they called her name, and she was like, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, she came running in. And so I mean, <laughs> it's kind of a stunning um, achievement that they've gotten every single um, you know, Democrat to vote uh, and, you know, stay unified. I think it's the first time that that's happened in a while. Obviously, you know, they're not going to vote for McCarthy. Um, you know, there was some discussion in the weeks leading up to today's uh, vote that somebody like Don Bacon would work with Democrats to elect an agreeable Republican of the Fred Upton ilk. He's a pro-impeachment um, outgoing Republican. That's probably not going to happen. He's just trying to use that to threaten the House Freedom Caucus. But no, Sarah, in short, I don't think that will happen. Uh, and Harvest, what do you think actually goes down tomorrow? What's your prediction? Or what What do we know? What do we not know? Um, what we know is basically what members told me, which is that there's going to be a lot of talking and a lot of conferencing. And um, it's interesting because the 20th vote against McCarthy was Byron Donalds, who earlier in the day, I spoke with him um, when he was coming out of the GOP caucus meeting that morning where like Kevin McCarthy had been giving his like basically last speech, trying to convince everybody to unify. And I asked like, does, did his speech change any minds? Has anything changed any minds? And he was like, no, everyone's like dug in. I don't think it changed a thing. This is just, you know, where people are at. Um, and so I found it kind of ironic that a few hours later, he was the one whose mind, at least temporarily, had changed. Um, he also said it could change back. He said he's exactly. not ruling out voting for McCarthy He later. just wants it over, right? I mean, that's his position, which I, yeah. I have some respect for. So yes, what do they think is going to happen tonight? Why adjourn? Why come back at noon? Why not have Voterama through the night? Is it... Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson? Is it Kevin McCarthy trying to make more deals that he didn't make over the last three months? I don't well, think we really... Oh, I'm sorry, Audrey. I don't think okay. we really know what the path forward is, but um, the the goal of like uh, adjourning tonight is basically to talk and to get to a consensus. Ideally for Kevin McCarthy, it's so that the next time he walks onto the floor, he has the votes. Whether or not that happens, I'm skeptical, but um, that's his angle at least. Sorry, what do you think? Yeah, um, I see his numbers growing, it seems. Um, Who's? You see Kevin McCarthy's numbers growing overnight tonight? Oh, no, sorry. Uh, the uh, Jim Jordans, if he's the still. Got the, it. <laughs> sorry. No, I don't. I mean, it, you know, it picked up 19 to, to 20 no votes. But just one thing that struck me, Sarah, you kind of touched on this, is how the Freedom Caucus, they don't, it doesn't really seem like they care who's elected. I mean, Byron Donald, who's in the scrum with a bunch of reporters and somebody was like, do you think that Jim Jordan actually has a path to the speakership? He's like, oh, I don't know, maybe. And it's like, well, then why did you vote for him? Um, but he said that one of the reasons why they want Jim Jordan to be speaker is because he doesn't want the job. Um, and they're just really frustrated that McCarthy has been in leadership for so long and he's promising all these, you know, big promises. And it's like, well, why haven't you done this all this stuff already. Um, you've had the opportunity to do it. Um, but yeah, tomorrow's going to be a, another fun ride, it seems. <laughs> all right. And you guys are going to hop off now to go write this all up for uh, the dispatch. So there'll be plenty to read about tomorrow. And then you're going to be back in the halls, back in the chamber tomorrow, right? That's right. That's and what's the best way to get updates? Are you all tweeting? Are you tweeting? Yes, for sure. Yes. Okay. Audrey, what's your handle? Uh, my name, Audrey Falberg. Okay. Harvest, what's your handle? Same, Harvest Prude. 
man, you guys just totally missed out on naming your Twitter, Twitter handles. Like it was 1995 AIM instant messenger. <laughs> like uh, it used to be fallout Berg, like fall fallout boy, but I decided yeah. to be professional and change it, but you know, maybe I should change it again. I mean, here I am. Uh, all right, Audrey Harvest, thank you so much. Now, Joan and I will pontificate for the remainder of the hour. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Um, okay, Jonah. All right, Sarah. Let's get let's get real about this. <laughs> <laughs> Does any of this matter? Right? If the house, if nothing the house does is going to uh, become law anyway. Um, and it, we're deciding between Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise. It, is this more about the political moment we're in and again, shifts in party power maybe, but it's not, it's not actually going to matter to anyone's life except Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise. Yeah. So I, I'm sort of on team uh, Chris Starwalt and Jim Garrity and a few other people on this in that look by Friday, we're going to know who the speaker of the house is going to be like 95% sure of that. Right. So like in two weeks, people are like, remember that? That was weird, right? I mean, it's not, it's gonna be like a, a one of a hundred other things that we thought was like this huge story for 48 hours that turned out to be interesting. But um, I, I just, you know, there are no great ideas at stake here. Again, you got pro-Trumpers on both sides of this. You got, you know, squishes on all various sides of this. It's, it's, um, uh, and it's really about sort of the humiliation of Kevin McCarthy in some ways. So like, I understand why it's politically interesting. It does, it does represent the dysfunction of the GOP in a nice encapsulated kind of way, but you know, the, the, there's very little big picture about it that I think really really matters and i i get I, I start to roll my eyes when i see these people on tv saying every day this goes on the ability of congress to deal with the people's business shrinks you know and all this kind of stuff it's like any leader any speaker is screwed with a majority of five seats right um uh and so like there's very limited thing that any speaker is going to be able to do um, I'm personally in favor of a weak speaker. Um, I think the Nancy Pelosi model has been poisonous to American democracy. It's not just her model. It starts with really goes way back, but Newt did a lot of damage. Paul Ryan yeah, tried yeah, to but, stop it. But, but explain, you know. explain that because I think it's really important. And when you talk to people who are Hill lifers, staffers or members, they're going to explain exactly this, that Newt Gingrich basically destroyed the institution of the House. And a lot of the problems that uh, we have now, it basically it undermines my thesis about campaign finance reform, because I think that's a very, very good causal explanation for why Congress is so stagnated, but I'm not sure um, it exactly explains this. So first of all, explain the Newt Gingrich ruined Congress thesis. Okay. So part of it, uh, like I'm a, you know, one standard deviation older than you. When I came to Washington, uh, it was not unreasonable to think that there were certain committee chairs that were more powerful than the speaker of the house. And for most of American history, it was not expected that you would know who the Speaker of the House was. It's just, you know, um, and it's not because Congress wasn't important. It's because the speakership wasn't that important. And what Newt did was, for understandable reasons at the time, like a lot of reforms, it made sense. Like we were both in favor of C-SPAN in the early days because we thought transparency was good. But it turns out there's problems with transparency. <laughs> they basically neutered all of the committee chairs. Um, they took away all of the sort of ability of committee chairs to punish people. Um, they took away the basic process that I grew up understanding through schoolhouse rock videos that said that, you know, legislating is supposed to bubble up from below. You're supposed to have experts disagree, have testimony. It's supposed to be an acute problem that people take to Congress that, 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 legislation is hammered out first in committee and then is presented to the whole and all that kind of stuff. And particularly under Nancy Pelosi, but Newt and, and again, Paul Ryan, who I consider a friend is part of the problem too. But I think Pelosi is embraced in a way that no one else has except for Chuck Schumer on the democratic, on the Senate side is they have basically what they call four corners leaders, you know, four corners process, which is basically the two most important people in each branch 
come up with all of what the legislation is, like this monstrous omnibus thing we just had, and they present it as a fait accompli to the body and say, as like as like stone tablets saying reject it or don't reject or don't accept it or not, because of the partisan climate, you have no choice but to accept it. And this is where I think Chip Roy is entirely correct. It's where I think the House Freedom Caucus, at least on paper, is entirely correct. The process sucks. The legislative process is supposed to provide buy-in where, where stakeholders from with different interests haggle and negotiate and all that kind of stuff. And instead, you know, when Tip, I mean, I just wrote about this, but like, you know, Tip O'Neill always used to say all politics is local. That hasn't been true for the last 25 years, in part because of Congress, because Congress has nationalized all politics. It's why you have, you know, people don't do split ticket voting anymore. It's because Congress is now a place where the leadership imposes policies and all that's left for a lot of the congressmen is the performative stuff, is the, you know, the sort of nonsensical, you know, symbolic stuff, because they are not given the opportunities to legislate and 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 haggle over legislation. Okay. So, as I said, I agree with all of that, but I'm not sure this is a great example of that because I would love to go back to 1992 House rules, but simply weakening the speaker doesn't do that. I want to strengthen the individual members and the chairman. And while weakening the speaker might allow for some of that, sort of like, um, you know, if you get rid of all the apex predators, you're going to end up with more um, of the lower order animals, perhaps. Great. Um, of course, as we've seen, well, I'm not going to go into my wolf thing. <laughs> is this the wolves of Yellowstone yes, you know, yes, saving the rivers? Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that. It's yeah. good. Um, but the the point is like, okay, maybe by, for instance, making it easier to recall a speaker, maybe that will lead to some um, intended or unintended consequences in fixing some of those problems you mentioned. But nothing that they've actually gotten from McCarthy goes to fix those problems in any direct way, right? They're just weakening yeah, the speaker no, so I, I, and hoping the rest I, happens. I, I, I am with you on that. I mean, I, 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 I think that the, I think this is all a symptom of these problems. But part of the problem is, you know, I saw, I saw the stat today. I think Amy Walter had it. Something like eighty percent of Republicans have been elected since two thousand nine, yeah. which basically means. Um, very few of them have any memory of a pre-Tea Party institution, yeah. right? And like Joe Santos, and I'm feeling the Joe momentum. I just want to be clear about that. But like um, Joe Santos is attracted to being a congressman. George. The con yeah. No, Joe, you know, the the the, the Jew-ish guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. People like him or Matt Gates, right? They're attracted to being congressmen because of the ruined nature of Congress, right? right? They want to use it as a platform to perform upon. They don't actually want to legislate. They want to be them, right? They want to be Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Lauren Boebert and just green and not actually have to read binders and anything like that. And I think that the, so yeah, the fight against McCarthy is part, is part of because of the deformed political characters of most of these people, because those are the kind of people who are attracted Congress. I mean, we've talked about this a million times. The one of the best indicators of why Congress is such a mess was um, that email from Madison Cawthorn, which reflected a real trend. And there's real data on this, but like where he said, uh, you know, look, yeah, we're not really going to hire any legislative staffers. We're just going to hire comms people. And what they mean by comms people is 24 year old d bags who want to own the libs on Twitter, right? They think that, like, look at the House Judiciary Committee's Twitter feed. That's the problem. Um, House GOP, you know, staff's Twitter feed. That's the problem with Congress now. And those are the jackals that are feeding on McCarthy. But McCarthy has not been the kind of guy to push back on any of that kind of stuff. So he has it coming. All right, we brought him up a couple times, uh, but Patrick Frey says, can we please stop giving Chip Roy the benefit of the doubt? And I think it's worth a few minutes with both of us um, to talk about why we keep giving Chip Roy the benefit of the doubt, because I think actually we come at it from very different places and have ended up in the same place. And I hope that um, 
with dispatch members, we have some credibility to explain why we keep treating CHIP differently than some of the other folks in the Freedom Caucus and in the Never Kevin crowd. Uh, so Jonah, well, actually, I'm going to go first because yours you is first. more. Yeah. And you know him better. You know. Um, so I've mentioned this like a long time ago, uh, but CHIP and I sat next to each other on my very first campaign, which was John Cornyn's 2002 race. He was the policy director and I was a nothing burger uh, baby press staffer. And he was in law school at the time. And Chip and I have remained friends ever since then. This is part of the reason why, by the way, I encourage young people to think about going on campaigns, even if you don't want to work in politics someday. But um, I still have so many close friends from that campaign. And there were only like 10 of us. Um, And so a bunch of us have really kept in touch. So Chip is one of those people. He then goes on uh, to be Ted Cruz's chief of staff. He then, um, when my husband, Scott, was chief counsel to Ted Cruz, then Chip and Scott go to the Texas attorney general's office. Chip was first assistant, which is like the deputy attorney general, and Scott was solicitor general for Texas. Um, So anyway, that's all to say, I've had sort of conversations, political conversations with Chip at this point, like for the majority of my adult life, the, sorry, the majority of my total life, including my childhood, um, I've known Chip um, longer than I didn't know Chip. And you can not like what Chip believes, but believe me when I tell you that Chip believes it. This isn't about political maneuvering. Um, if Chip thought that his constituents um, would vote him out of office, for believing what he believed and for voting the way he would want to vote, he will happily leave Congress. He's not one of those guys who just wants to sit in Congress um, for sort of the power and prestige. He spends as little time in Washington as humanly possible. He lives in the far, far exurbs of Austin. Um, And so the trappings of all this stuff aren't meaningful to him. To him, this has been a policy fight. Oh, and one last thing that will interest you guys about Chip, he ghost wrote Rick Perry's book, Um, in the sort of heat of the Tea Party uh, movement. And if you want to see what Chip Roy believes, go read that Rick Perry book from, I want to say circa like 2009, maybe 2010. It's actually, I had to read all of those books that year. I guess it was 2010. Um, uh, You know, everyone wrote their like Tea Party manifesto book, but Rick Perry's was by far the best. And I didn't even know at that point that Chip had actually um, been the ghostwriter of it. So again, hate Chip Roy, disagree with everything he does and everything he believes in. But believe me, like he absolutely believes it. It's coming from a true, you know, strap on the best type place. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I'm going to push back a little bit on that. I'm not actually disagree. You know, orders of magnitude better than I do. I think I've met him once or twice. Um, I, I will say I think that he has a problem common to many lawyers. Um, oh no! Uh, that he can come up with such smart, internally consistent arguments yeah. that he convinces himself that a lawyerly argument is an argument from conviction. And um, I think I don't disagree with that. His, his, I think his, his Ted Cruz claim, does the same thing <laughs> for sure. But like, I think Ted Cruz, the, the wheat and the chaff are now just one common mush at this point with Ted Cruz. But, um, and Ted Cruz isn't, I would never call, you know, Ted Cruz, I've also known for a large chunk of my life, not as long as Chip. I would never say that Ted Cruz is like a true believer, like I think Chip is. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. But my point is like, I mean, I'm just thinking about like Chip Roy's explanation about impeachment which I think was on, within the four corners, as you people say, as your ilk says, uh, totally defensible and correct, um, was a real not seeing the forest for the trees kind of argument. Like going as a member of the House saying what he did was impeachable, but this bill of impeachment uh, doesn't work for me. I get it, but he was looking to find a way not to vote for impeachment. Um, and I, I think-, think that's true. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because to me, it illuminates Chip's personality really, really well. The good, the bad, like this isn't a defense. This is, I I actually think you're exactly right that if you want to know about Chip Roy. So his argument was Nancy Pelosi didn't involve any Republicans. 
um, in the drafting of that. I mean, I've talked about this as well, that if Nancy Pelosi actually wanted to pick up more votes for impeachment, you needed to just focus on the dereliction of duty, the end. Um, And instead, it was basically drafted in a way that if you supported Donald Trump on election day, then you couldn't vote for impeachment because it was about all this other stuff starting back um, in August or July heading you know, into the fall. Um, and so, yeah, so Chip's argument was, I'm happy to help draft the article of impeachment. I think there's a lot of Republican votes to be had here. I don't know if it's enough, um, but but this ain't it. And it's not the right process. And Nancy Pelosi's a political hack for doing it this way. So I'm not going to vote for it because I don't believe these things. And if I did say I believe those things, then it would mean that everything I did in the fall didn't make any sense when I was supporting Donald Trump. Yeah, so I, it, it cuts I, both ways. I hear you that that's a lawyerly explanation. You're right. I get it's it. A forest for it's a trees for forest problem. Totally right. But um, that's very very chip. Also. Yeah, and so anyway, I, look. I mean, we could have. I mean, we could have violent agreement on a lot of this stuff. But uh, um, I, I think that given I mean, this again, I'm really tempted just to go after you lawyers about this kind of stuff. It drives me freaking crazy with impeachment that all of a sudden the only people who are allowed to have expertise on impeachment are lawyers who have argument who have lawyerly arguments about legal procedure, and they'll always mumble into their armpit. Oh, and by the way, um, this isn't a legal proceeding, <laughs> right? And um, the idea that you can't have political. Um, considerations in a admittedly political proceeding because it violates BS nerdy legal technicalities in the in the language I think is political hackery masquerading as lawyerliness but that's a different sure. argument anyway look no, I, I think I, that's I like really to- interesting because you're right that if this were a true criminal proceeding even if I thought the person was guilty of some other crime I would never vote to convict someone if the prosecutor right. didn't bring that crime um, as, as the charge. And it wouldn't matter like that. I wouldn't care if you harangued me for forest for trees arguments, you bring the right charge. I convict someone, you know, for murder, not for arson if they killed the guy, but they didn't burn the building and you only charge them with arson. Um, but in a political proceeding. Yeah. And, um, I think an enormous number of legal pundits, an enormous number of politicians, uh, uh, I got a lot of skin in the game going back to Arlen Specter, Ooh. voting Glenn Fiddick or whatever the hell that BS Scottish thing he invoked. Um, I, 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 the lawyerliness that is brought to impeachment stuff drives me crazy. And I, I think Chip Roy's position on it was part of it. That said, I do think that he's one of these guys, unlike a lot of anti-McCarthy people. And let me be clear, like I'm going to tomorrow, I'm asking my assistant guy, to find the audio on the various podcasts over the last year where I've talked about with giddy, I'm getting a pony for Christmas glee about Kevin McCarthy being screwed by Donald Trump at the, at the 11th hour when he wants to become speaker. I, Kevin McCarthy deserves everything he's getting as a person. That's fine. But like a lot of the anti-McCarthy people um, have no problem lying, not knowingly lying. And I think that that Chip Roy, well, I think his analysis is a little wrong on some of this stuff. He's definitely got this step two question mark, question mark, question mark stuff uh, in spades. I mean, I heard him on CNN today and like like the things he's talking about as if like Scalise will usher in all of the things that Kevin McCarthy won't. It's just nonsense as political analysis. But I think he comes at this stuff from conviction. I just think he's wrong. And there are a lot of people who, like, I literally don't care what anybody's defense of Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene is. That doesn't mean they're not always, that doesn't mean they're not sometimes right. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're not sometimes knowingly lying, but they are just so full of fecal matter that I, it doesn't matter to me what their specific defenses are in a specific case. That's not true of Chip Roy. I think he's got integrity. I just think he deludes himself the way a lot of lawyers delude themselves. Okay, Jonah, if you were a member of Congress, how would you have voted today? That's a tough question. Um, 
Hey, so look, I mean, there's a lot of question begging in that, and I'm using question begging in the correct way. Um, because it assumes like I would be the kind of congressman who would have gotten to the point where I would be presented with this choice. And I, I certainly think I would have been primaried in 2022. Um, Look, so you're a, you're uh, a new member. You just got elected. It's your yeah. first vote. I would have voted for Kevin McCarthy. Really? Like, yeah. I mean, I, I again, the, re, the number of reasons why I'm not in Congress is <laughs> are massive. Uh, but um, I, I think that if I taken that fork in the road, I probably would have voted Kevin McCarthy, and I would have comforted myself with the knowledge that he will still be the Liz Truss of American politics. Yeah, get your cabbages ready. If he does win on the fourth ballot, um, I don't think this is going to last long. Although, interestingly, you know, one of the arguments for that at least had been bandied about um, for now taking this adjournment until tomorrow at noon. Um, I think the argument that Kevin McCarthy is somehow going to make deals tonight that he didn't make over the last three months is silly, but that there could be outside pressure brought to bear now that people are coming to realize the situation. Um, I guess, I mean, we're obviously not watching, but I guess. How would you Tucker, have voted? <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess Tucker Carlson's lighting into McCarthy tonight. And so yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if this adjournment had been a mistake, actually. Um, how I would think I it was a total to... mistake. I, I think Kevin McCarthy knew it was a mistake, but he had no choice. I think he was told, let's break, because his plan was not to do this. I know. Isn't that interesting? And I, I think it was a huge mistake. I, I think his best strategy was counting on the fact that those 20 Republicans would never go away. But come 8.30 in the morning tomorrow... Yeah, a 20 Democrats those, sure as hell were. A lot of those Democrats would have gone away. <laughs> I think McCarthy blew it. I mean, I think that was his his Waterloo. Yeah. Um, how would you have voted? How would I have voted? So with no other information about me as a member of Congress, I would have voted against Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. But um, if I could have gotten some great deal for my district over the last three months, to secure my vote for a guy who I think will be the weakest speaker in U.S. history and won't be speaker for very long, I would have made a deal for something for my district, in which case I would have voted for Kevin McCarthy. So I think at the end of the day, my vote could have been bought for something good for my district, like yeah, the others. That's fair. And I, I'm rethinking this. I mean, part of my reason for saying I would vote for Kevin McCarthy is my dislike of most of the people who voted against Kevin McCarthy and not wanting to be in <laughs> the that company number. you would have been in. <laughs> I would have like, started a no vote. I just think, you know, sort of understanding the system. Um, yeah. There is absolutely, you know, my vote I, would totally be for sale in this context yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and I say that as a matter of profound principle. Like this Truly, is I actually that I, mean that. I think yeah. as a member of Congress, your job is to represent your district, get the best deal you can for your constituents at all given moments. Um, having a sweet new library in the middle of town that's like a palace uh, for children. Yeah, I'll make that deal and vote for Kevin McCarthy to be speaker for six weeks. Sure. Yeah, and like in the Kevin, but like even the like the stuff that Chip Roy is demanding, that's more like the kind of stuff I like to imagine I would demand. <laughs> and I know that Kevin McCarthy would be lying to me, but. Um, or wouldn't be able to deliver, but I would take yes for an answer. That's my problem with a lot of these guys is McCarthy has given them everything they've asked for. And in bad faith, they've moved the goalposts. And that's the problem. I have no problem with being opposed to Kevin McCarthy, obviously. But like, if you say you have my vote for, if I, if you give me X and then I give you X and you still, well, now I want, you know, it's, what was it? Gary Oldman says in air force one. My country needs so many things, right? <laughs> After he wins everything. That's how I kind of feel about it. Uh, by the way, as some of you know, my boy cat, Zoo, passed away in October. And that was Franny, the sister, who you've never seen before because um, it, the loss has hit her hard, certainly. This was her protector who died. Like, Zoo was always the one sort of out front and center, making sure that the murderers were at bay. Um, so she does wander around the house crying a lot. She might be senile. I'm not sure. She she is going on 16. But at least in this room, she has come out of her shell once Nate is asleep. If Nate is awake, no, no. <laughs> she's quite a handsome figure. She got quite a handsome figure. She um, really is. And she's the softest cat. She is softer than Zoo was. I have to, it, it, 
my family does not like to hear this, but, um, you know, Ralph, um, who I always described as my wife's cat, um, passed away a couple of years ago, um, right around January 6th. And um, I got to say, Gracie loves it. Um, she's feeling her oats. She's you know, like, like she could not, it's now in retrospect clear to me that she could not stand Ralph and, and that Ralph kind of bullied her. It's so funny. I thought that Fran hated zoo. Yeah. Um, and so I absolutely thought with zoo's passing, she would be like, Oh, finally, he constantly was harassing me and attacking me and like wanting to play. And I was like, shut up. Um, but instead no, you'll like hear her crying in random corners of the house, like at 11 a.m., like no reason. So yeah, um, cats anyway. are weird. I mean, let's let's just be honest. Cats are weird. That's true. Um, there was one person in the chamber who was happy that the news cycle had moved on to this. Uh, we've mentioned him already, but uh, one George Santos of New York. Is that happy. Joe Santos? No, you kept George. saying George. Yeah, it's George. I mean, who knows what his real name is? I don't want to confirm here that it's George. Really, George? He ran as George Santos. That was the name on the ballot. (laughs) Look, I could sworn it was Joe Santos. I've been making Joe Mensum jokes forever, and everyone just sort of laughs at me. And I'm like, now they're (laughs) laughing at me because I'm a moron. Look at that. (laughs) You're right. I apologize. Good God, I could have sworn he was Joe Santos. Well, let's let's get his long form birth certificate before we exactly pile too much on you. So he sat in the back of the chamber today and nobody talked to him. And then I guess one member did come talk to him until he said his name. And then that member kind of ran away. Um, It's sort of the first time I felt a little bit sorry for the guy. Like you get elected to Congress and like literally no one will sit with you in the lunchroom. But the question that we have from John Herman is what's going to happen to George Santos? I'm curious your thoughts. Oh, I... I think it's, I think maybe even you said, I think it was you who said this on um, this week. I know it makes you very uncomfortable when I reveal that I actually watch you on TV. Um, (laughs) I know it does. It's just one of the reasons (laughs) I like to bring it up. Um, I think there's almost zero doubt that he's got some financial improprieties in his campaign stuff and they'll, they will get him on that. And, um, and, you know, I want, Per your point, it needs to be lawful and correct on the merits, but um, society really needs to punish people who behave like he does. And I would rather it didn't have to fall to the law to do it. But um, uh, uh, if he finishes his term, it'll be his last term in Congress for sure. If he finishes his term in Congress and not in jail, I will be surprised. Yeah. Um, the wheels of justice move slowly, but not that slowly. Uh, I find it mind-blowingly fascinating that the Democrats claim, uh, claim is the wrong term, they did, um, send oppo to a bunch of very, very local, small newspapers about how um, basically George Santos's business dealings weren't on the up and up, not that they were fake, but that, you know, there was all this like shady stuff about how he got all this money. I mean, talk about like missing the story. And then none of the reporters wrote it up because frankly, it wasn't a very good story. They didn't send it to any outlets that actually would have had the resources to follow up and do their own reporting on it. Um, Malfrickin practice. So yeah, I, like we we've talked about this a bunch, and I, I agree with you. It's a, it's institutional failure for Republicans, for Democrats, for the media, local media, national media, all of that. I agree with that. I want to I want to float a theory past you that a friend of mine um, floated past me, which is that particularly in New York media circles, mm-hmm. um, like because like when you think about it this way, and you know this better than I do. Um, the first thing you do when you're doing oppo or really close to the first thing you do is you go see if they did something terrible in college, right? I mean, it's like, it's, it's pretty early in the process, right? And particularly if they're young, because these days all that stuff is recorded and like the standard for doing something wrong in college is so low and blah, 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 blah. But this is my friend's theory is that 
first of all, nobody at the New York Times went to Baruch College. And most of the people who run for Congress went to like Harvard, Yale, Brown, whatever. And the way they do their check out their story thing is they call their five friends who went there You're who so are right. the same age. Yeah. And they're like, hey, do you know this guy? But since they didn't know anybody at Baruch, like, like that step got missed. And they didn't want to actually have to call like the dean of students office and can you confirm <laughs> and blah, 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 blah. I think there's something to that sociologically, even if it's not entirely accurate on the merits. What do you think of that? Um, I think that's right for the reporters. It's not right for the campaign, though. I mean, the first thing yeah, I yeah, did yeah. In every campaign I worked on was create an opposition research binder for my candidate. And if I found that I couldn't prove something they were saying was correct, I would go to them and say, like, is there another way to phrase this? Or do you have the receipts of some kind um, right. for how this works? And then, of course, I do it on the opponent. And I mean, that's what these campaign committees, that's why they have um, such a large staff that does research is they make the binders on all the other candidates right. um, for the Democrats. And so what happened here on the Democratic side and the Republican side, for that matter? But we're going to move on. Three quick things to discuss. One, David French is going to the New York Times. Yeah, I know. So, A, uh, I've gotten a lot of questions about this, so I'll clear it up for dispatch members. David is going to stay with advisory opinions, proving once again that it is the flagship podcast. But he will also be appearing from time to time on Dispatch Live. So you're not going to miss David entirely, but his writing will be moving entirely over to the New York Times, which is pretty freaking cool, by the way. Um, so yay for the dispatch to have a platform that the New York Times steals from. Yeah. So like, first of all, uh, as I've been saying quite a few times lately, I don't know who this David person you're referring to is because the only person I can think of is dead to me. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, look, like, uh, I mean, David is, I, I, I think you would agree with this is like literally in like the, like, like, the literal sense is one of the best people we know, right? I mean, he's just a truly, yep. truly good person. Like, Although you are surprisingly high on the list, and I feel like a lot of people probably don't know that. Yeah, don't, don't let that, that's not muddy the waters with that nonsense. Yeah. Um, but like, um, of people that you would, that we know that would stop at two in the morning in the rain to help someone on the side of the road fix a flat tire. I don't know that I know anybody of better better likelihood of doing that kind of thing than David French. And um uh and I'm he called me as a mensch and he he talked to me about it and he I believe him when he says he's bittersweet about all of this and that he really just couldn't say no and I get it and all that kind of stuff. It still hurts, right? And like the part of the problem is is um David, I mean, David's skill set or or whatever we're going to call it is really irreplaceable. So I don't think we can ever try. Like, it would be really dumb to find a new David French. We got to find, you know, you know, whoever we hire next or the next 10 people we hire next, none of them are going to be David French and all that kind of stuff. But I'm very happy for him. And um, I'm kind of hoping the New York Times lives down to my expectations and he's back in like 18 months. <laughs> uh, that would be amazing. Okay. Two more hot topics. One, uh, dear Paul, I am not sitting on the floor. I am sitting backward on a couch. So, uh, that's the couch and see the couch. You would normally sit facing that way, but I wanted the nice backdrop. So I'm facing the back of the couch, um, and sitting crisscross on it. If it's I, not very comfortable. If I sat like that, one kneecap would fly across the room that way and three vertebrae would knock over the stuff behind you. You'll like, I, I didn't do it this time, but sometimes when we're doing dispatch live. You'll like see a leg. come Because <laughs> 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 my feet sometimes fall asleep doing this. Um, okay. Last question to you, Jonah from Brian. Critical question. What's in the Amazon box on Jonah's bookshelf? Wrong answers only. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it, it's, it was some Christmas present, Hanukkah present thing that I took out of the box. And now I can't remember what's in it. I apologize. I know I ruined people's fun. 
Um, it's too small to be, have the head of Alfredo Garcia in it. So I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> All right. And with that, uh, my lasagna is out of the oven, which means it's dinner time here in the post bedtime quiet household where just occasionally there's a crying cat in the hallway. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonah. Thank you for you eat carbs out. very late. That's you don't seem like that kind of person. <laughs> we always eat dinner after Nate goes to sleep because then we actually get to like enjoy our food and have conversation. So nice. we're, you know, 8 39 PM dinner people. Um, mm -hmm. so thanks for joining dispatch live. Really interested to see what happens tomorrow at noon. Even if it doesn't actually matter, I'm into it. I'm into the drama. So I'll be tuning in. I'm sure Jonah will too. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it on the dispatch podcast this week. Uh, which you will all be hearing soon enough from us. Thank you again for your support and membership and coming to join us tonight. Bye-bye. Later.